Welcome to the Catalyst Podcast. This episode was given on July 15th, 2018 by Jason Shea in the series, Ruth, Fully Devoted. Good morning again. Probably never thought we could spend so long in one chapter, huh? <laughs> uh, I am continually amazed at how much... Um, how much continues to come out of this, uh, this story, uh, at least for me. And I hope, I hope you're finding, finding that as well in our journey through it. Um, so last week we, uh, we left off. Can you all hear me okay? Yeah? All right. Uh, so last, last week we left off with um, Ruth making a covenant to Naomi that we just read. The covenant was this marker uh, of what it meant to be a family. It, it redefined who was committed to Naomi. And Naomi accepts this commitment from Ruth, although some might argue begrudgingly. Why, why should I take that Moabite with me? You know, she's she's very uh, she could she could be very angry about this as well. Um, others might see uh, Naomi's receive, rece- um, the receiving of Ruth's commitment as uh, a way that God planted a seed in Naomi's heart, perhaps to see Yahweh's hand later in her life. Um, Last week, I suggested that Ruth saw something in Naomi um, that was different than anything that she had ever known before. Um, So Ruth's Ruth's background, we went into this big thing about Moabites and how um, the sort of the the tension between Moabites and Israelites and how it didn't really ever make sense for these two two people groups to come together. Um, But sort of God had a different plan. So... um, uh, Ruth's, Ruth's background is a Moabite. She's committed to a different God. Um, the Israelites are committed to a different God. Uh, and then in Ruth's time of with Naomi, she's probably with her for about maybe 10 to 15 years. Um, something shifts in Ruth. Something dramatic shifts in her, right? And something that compels Ruth to make uh, a vow or a commitment to Naomi. And I, and I suggested that Ruth was um, she saw a flicker, she saw a light, she saw something different in Naomi that just drew her to her, the way perhaps even um, pollen draws bees, right? You with me so far? Um, so, uh, so here we are in the story, and, and I, I want to focus on one verse today, um, and it's verse 19. It says, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. So if you were looking at a map of uh, the Middle East um, during this time, um, let's, let's say uh, I, I was going to get a map, and then I realized I didn't have a map. So we're going we're gonna to use our stage as a map. Um, so let's pretend like the altar area right here is the, uh, the Dead Sea. So on this side of the Dead Sea is, to the north is the plains of Moab, and then to the south is like Moab. Um, where perhaps more of the town, the townspeople live. And then on the other side of the Dead Sea, over here, you have the northern and southern kingdom. So you have Israel, the top, you have Judah at the bottom. And Bethlehem is kind of the northern part of Judah. So Bethlehem would be like right kind of almost on the border. So um, when Ruth and Naomi leave, they have to decide, okay, which, which way are we going to go? Are we going to go south? around the bottom of the Dead Sea or are we going to go north? So they decide they go up and they go around. I know, right? Uh, they go around the Dead Sea. 
Jordan River, which comes right into the top of the Red Sea. So imagine this is the river flowing in. We cross the river. Okay, not quite that simple. And then they come down, and then they have to meet in the Bethlehem. So, in order to do this, it's probably the court. Probably they people suggest it's maybe like fifty to sixty miles. Um, so, uh, to get from one place to the other. So, on average, at least everything I read, it said probably took maybe ten to twelve days on foot. Um, so that's sleeping, eating, you know, I don't know how, far, how fast they could go, is rugged terrain, um, and perhaps pretty dangerous as well. Um, remember, uh, you're traveling with it, she's in there in Moab, so you're traveling with a, an Israelite through Moab, and then you get to Israel and you're traveling with a Moabite in Israel. <laughs> So you got a lot of that, a lot of things against you. So so it took a little while, um, and so the verse tells us the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. So I want you just to use your imaginations just for a second, and I want you to actually share with me what do you think happened in those ten days, going from Moab around to Bethlehem? Like just, I mean, it doesn't tell us exactly what happened, but if you were to use your imagination, what? Okay, snakes. Okay, yeah. So anything. Anyway, it could be a phrase. So they had to deal with those kinds of things. Yes, snakes. What else? What? Exhaustion. Okay, so tired, right? She's beyond childbearing years. She's beyond childbearing years. Yeah, that's right. They didn't have water filters. They didn't have to pay to cross the river. It what? Yeah, I don't know, actually. I'm not sure if they would have had to pay to cross the river or not. Um, that's an interesting point, though. Like, what was, what was getting them across the river like? I can't say exactly. Um, I mean, it, it just only tells us that they went, but most likely it was on foot. Um, considering they were women, they probably didn't have the resources to even have any kind of of those, um, you know, animals to help pack pack things. It's ten days, so it's not too long. What else? What about the conversation? What do you think the conversation was like? Yes, Holman. Oh, What's that? Bandits along the way. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean. I would ask, what is it like? What is it Ruth, like? Ruth would have never been there. You know, I would have said, what's it like? What's your country like? What are people like? How are they going to like me? Or are they not going to like me? Right, right. Yeah, that's great. So that's okay. What about, um, what else do you think happened in their conversation? Think about, oh, go ahead, Jamie. Probably not pretty cranky with each other. Cranky? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, okay, so that's, that's a good point. So think about all that they just went through. I mean, they literally just lost everything. I mean, we, last week I talked about how, um, I mean, they, this is a very, very, very patriarchal society. They lost everything. Husbands, sons, every, their identity, all the way down to the social ladder, money, resources, everything. What was that conversation like? Yes. That's a good question. I, perhaps they might have had to do something like that. Yeah, so perhaps find friends or family, uh, not friends or family, they didn't have any of that. Um, someone else to help guide them. And then that's also what it is. Yes, anybody else? Well, they probably were discussing what's going to happen when we get there. Okay, so. I mean, are, is it going to be any better than where we just came from? So they're doing, yeah. It's like, well, I don't have a husband, I don't have 
sons, I, you know, it's going to be exactly the same. They're doing some prep. They have to do. There's some preparing that they're happening. That's happening. Or just saying we don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Because they originally left, or Naomi originally left because of a famine. I mean, or her and her husband left because of a famine. They go into Moab, and then they get word that there's food back in her hometown. So there's a lot that probably that transpired in those 10 days. There's probably a lot, maybe a lot of silence. Um, I mean, I don't know how long it had been since their, um, they lost their husbands. But from the people that I know who have lost close people in their lives, I mean, 10 days, I mean, it takes a long time to begin the healing process. Um, I mean, I have a friend... Um, my friend Tim Doty, he lost his wife years ago. Um, he's the pre- uh, pastor at the Presbyterian Church up the street. And, uh, you know, I meet with him monthly for breakfast, and he still, still talks to I me. Mean, this is like five, six years later, you know, and he's just now starting to kind of move forward a little bit. So the grief was fresh, right? But there was, there was space. There was some space that happened in between those two points that perhaps maybe help prepare them. So I want to talk to you for a minute about boats and airplanes. Right? Where's he going with this? Um, okay, so I just have a quick question. Is, did, has anybody in here served, did anybody in here serve in, the war, in World War II? Korean War? Vietnam? Vietnam? Okay. Um, so uh, I want to read um, a, little, a, a little excerpt from a study um, that's about what happens to soldiers um, when they return from war. And uh, it's, not, it's not too intense, but it, it, I, hope, I hope it highlights something that I, um, a point I want to make here. Um, so over, the cor- so over the course of time, there's been a lot of people who have done studies on what happens when people return from war. Um, and there's, there's differences that happen from people who returned in World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War, um, Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, and people do a lot of research on the mental health of soldiers and what happens in post-war when they, when they come back home. So this is a little excerpt from a, a really long study in, uh, that was done at, uh, in Stanford. So it says, some Vietnam veterans and psychologists believe that PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, was so common after Vietnam and not after Korea or World War II because following the previous wars, soldiers were brought home on boats, which took them longer to get home. Thus, they had more time to reflect on their experiences. By the time they arrived home, they had already talked to fellow war buddies about the horrors that they experienced. They were able to talk about their feelings with somebody before they got home, which is what the Vietnam veterans lacked, boats and airplanes. So, Vietnam War, people came home, on an airplane. So you're in the battlefield one day, home to take you to Vietnam back to the United States. Maybe a day, right? Not, not very long. So you go from battlefield 
back to home at the dinner table really quick. No process. There's no time to think about process, talk out loud about everything that you have just experienced. World War II, you leave the battlefield, you've got to travel quite a distance on boat. There's time there to process, right? Lots of time to process um, about what just happened. So we have a generation that came out of returned home from World War II, the baby boomers, right? Am I right? Yes, the baby boomers. They came home, they had kids. They were ready, they were ready to be back home differently than the World War II, the, I'm sorry, the Vietnam vets were. Now, I recognize war is complicated. I'm not a veteran, and I've never served in that capacity, and for anybody who's had family, I realize it's very complicated, and there's lots of layers, and there's lots of things going on in the world, in the economy, that um, have an impact on the soldier's return. But when, you're, when we're looking at just these basic things and the way technology had, had an impact on how they returned home, our development in technology, our development to get from one continent to the next, um, we lost that process. The, the, the soldiers lost that process to, um, uh, before they got home. So there was no space. So I want to argue that like when I look at Naomi and Ruth and when they traveled, that space that they had was very, very important to the preparation that they were going to have when they arrived back in, in Bethlehem. Those conversations they had, that silence that they had, was so valuable. I mean, it doesn't tell us that exactly, but you and I both know that if we've had space to process something, we, we see things different, right? And, but we've lost some of this rhythm, I think, in our culture with the development of technology. I mean, we're always trying to get things done quicker. I mean, our apps try to get things done quicker. Our, Vehicles go quicker. I mean, everything is just like, let's get it done as quick as we can so, so we can do what? So we can save time? But, we, but what do we lose in the process? We, 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 lose that, we lose the process often. So my point in sharing the example about the veterans is to highlight that there's a rhythm that needs to happen in life, what I call the space between. It's the space between when a soldier leaves war, when a soldier comes, when arrives home. The space between moving from one city to another. The space between finding out that we have a diagnosis that we weren't expecting and just some symptoms that we didn't know what to do with. The space between leaving work on Friday and arriving on Monday. The space between leaving last year to go to New Zealand and you come back a year later. The space between going from the workforce to retirement, uh, losing a loved one and finding a way forward. The space between uh, Ruth and Naomi leaving Moab and returning to Bethlehem. What about the space between God creating a world out of chaos and then stepping back to acknowledge all that God had done, or space between uh, going from being a student to finding a career. Um, what about the space between creating space between or a rhythm between um, 
transitions in your children and how they go from uh, different phases in their life. I'm like constantly, <laughs> it's like, okay, I got this down. Nope. <laughs> right? Um, I believe that built into the fabric of the created order, um, God has crafted an order, a rhythm that invites us into a place of rest and process. The process is so important. And I think that we have lost a lot of the process in our world today, in our culture. Um, the time that Ruth and Naomi had gone from Moab to Bethlehem was critical to their arrival because it, it gave them a time to sift through some of their emotions and all that happened in their family, the famine, the loss, the despair. And, and what happens when Naomi arrives in Bethlehem? She just lays it on the table. God has what? God has left me empty. She's honest. So having space and rest in, in the right rhythm doesn't necessarily guarantee you're going to like always be in a better place, but it might let you at least be a little more honest with where you're at. So she says, call me bitter. Call me bitter. She, this space has allowed her the place to be so real with herself and so real with God that she says, I am bitter. I am empty. And that is important, that we can come to those places and not pretend everything is rose, roses. Are you with me so far? She doesn't mince words. So a practice that was... Um, that I've invited into my life about 12 years ago was the practice of Sabbath. Um, up to 2004, I had never really thought about the idea of Sabbath um, other than I knew what it meant. Um, and and I am a, I'm a firm believer now in this notion of Sabbath and that God has created um, all that we call life built into the rhythms and rhythms that are meant to heal us, to allow process, and allow us to return back to God. So there's this word that, um, there's this word in the book of Ruth that we read in the first chapter, and you miss it in English, but it's, um, it's the word return. And this, the text tells us over and over again to return, to return. And it's Naomi talking about, it's that conversation she's having with um, her two daughters-in-law about going back to Bethlehem. And the, the, the Hebrew word for return is shuv, and shuv is where you get the word um, repentance, or to reorient yourself. And so I, I think that um, this, this idea of Sabbath is about us reorienting ourselves back to God, giving us the process, giving us the space between to process things that happen in our lives. And I think it's important. I think that we, we have lost it. And so... Um, now, I can't say for certain that Ruth and Naomi practiced Sabbath on the way, although since Naomi was an Israelite, she probably would have practiced Sabbath, and Naomi would have been a part of that. And on a 10-day journey, one of those days in there would have been a Sabbath. Um, and I think it's vital that as, as people who follow God, that we find that we intentionally set time aside to create space process. And, and I think Sabbath is a good place to do that. And I think that as a community, it's something I think we, 
need to find ways to do more. And it doesn't always have to be a 24-hour period. It could simply be an hour a day. It could be an hour a week. It could be a week a year. It could be a 24-hour period. How many people in here have practiced Sabbath at some point? A few of us? I'm not saying that to like make you feel guilty, like, oh boy. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's not that at all. Um, let me ask you a question. Um, so, when does, for, for Jewish people, when does the day start? Sundown. Sundown. For us in the West, when does the day start? Sunrise. Sunrise. Okay, so the day starts sundown. You start from a place of rest, and then you go to work. We do it opposite, right? We start from work, and then we rest. But what does it look like in our lives to start from a place of rest to go to work? So when you get to Sabbath, when you get to um, perhaps a Saturday. Now, I know some of us are retired, and we live Sabbath maybe more often. Nice. Uh, it, it'll reshape our lives. It really does. It's made a tremendous, tremendous difference, I know, for our family. And it's not easy because you have to be very intentional. It's not a day off. It's different. It's a, dime, it's a time to actually reflect and ask hard questions and to be real with where you are with God. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about ways that you can be involved with Catalyst, please visit our website at provokechange.org. Until next time, continue loving God, loving our neighbors, and loving each other.